Welcome to DTX Equals, where thought leaders in digital therapeutics put a stake in the ground on what makes DTX DTX. With me today is Simon Thomas. Simon is currently Free Spirit's president, but was their CEO before that and has been there for nine years, over nine years, which is just about as long as anybody has been at any digital therapeutics company. So Simon's background is in research and development, uh, and we met representing our respective companies in the Digital Therapeutics Alliance uh, Clinical Evidence Generation Work Group. And I'm so happy to have you here today, Simon. Thank you very much. Great to be here. So tell me, uh, what's a formative event in your life or career that influenced your path in DTX? Sure. Well, I've spent my whole career in, uh, in medical devices, and as you can probably tell by some gray hair, it's been it's been a while. You know, I started, being, started out in patient monitoring for newborns, adults, then fetal monitoring, and then some therapeutics. And as part of that early work, I helped develop new methods for blood gas monitoring back in the day, you know, pulse oximetry and, uh, and capnography when those industries were just getting going. You know, and along the way, I learned a lot about different areas of physical medicine, you know, anesthesia, critical care, obstetrics, urology, to name a few. But I never worked in mental health because medical devices really weren't used to treat mental health. So places I worked, we never we never went there. So when the opportunity to came to join Free Spirit arose back in 2013, when I got a call from the founding CEO, uh, Deborah Riesenthal, who's now on the DTA board, it was in very interesting opportunity being uh, mental health treatment, which utilized the sort of blood gas monitoring technologies that I'd you know, grown up with early in my in my career, and with a totally novel treatment, which had been demonst already demonstrated in one clinical study to be, uh, be effective. So I, joined, so I joined. That's how I got into, as you said, one of the first, uh, well, we didn't even call ourselves a digital therapeutic then because the term hadn't been uh, coined. And uh, we ended up being thinking kind of that we were a medical device technology, medical device company but with tech that was used at home, at home and to treat a, a mental health condition. That's how I got in. So as the person leading science in all of that, um, how, uh, how does it, like, do you have any observations now looking at all of the, um, the ways that FDA is now working with companies to kind of demonstrate the, um, the viability, the clinical viability of their products? Now that DTX is a thing that everybody, you know, kind of has specific ideas around versus when you kind of had to pave that way um, as a company that was uh, really early on the scene. Do you have any observations or thoughts about how that um, how that has evolved over time? Yeah, I mean, my frame for DTX is very much shaped by my years in the traditional med device industry. You know, so emphasis on quality and design and manufacturing and service, regulatory approvals from the FDA, clinical studies and publications to show effectiveness and then we can get into this shortly expecting kind of a long and arduous path to market because practice in medicine doesn't change quickly even if you're delivering a new monitoring modality or a new therapeutic but so you know my observations about dtx is to some extent shaped by that worldview which very much says okay guys come on you got a treatment show that it works design a study execute it demonstrate that it's effective and then get it published if you're not willing to basically put in that work, spend the money to do it, then you really shouldn't be playing in this sandbox and calling yourself a therapeutic. Because if you if you want to claim- So none of this was a surprise to you, right? It's everybody everybody else is surprised uh, to, to hear, oh my gosh, I got to show evidence. And you're like, uh, yeah, that's what you do. Well, yeah, like that's what you, that's what, that's what you do. I mean, you know, now then it gets, gets to be the discussion of, well, what sort of evidence should we do? Do we need to provide? Do we need to design DTX studies like drug studies? or like very large hundreds of thousands of patients, et cetera, very expensive. 
always an RCT? Or do we do more like traditional medical device clinical studies? You know, 50 to 100 patients, not necessarily an RCT. I mean, they're both valid ways of investigating the effectiveness. So you just have to pick what you think's doable within your organization and is going to give you, you know, adequate scientific evidence for the regulators, for publication. And then uh, when you've got a few of them strung together, you probably have a shot at getting payers to pay attention. Yeah, it's interesting because I, I think, uh, you know, in my background um, at uh, Twill, we were trying to come from software into medical device. Um, and you see that as a relatively common, you know, people with software backgrounds trying to enter into the mm -hmm. medical device space, as opposed to people in medical device who are already quite familiar with how it's done, um, trying to leverage what's known there. And, and it's taken some time to catch up. So it's interesting to hear it, that even though Free Spiro is one of the very early entrants, you know, they had the benefit of your background in medical device um, and that, uh, that kind of contributes to your overall um, path to market. Well, it certainly helped us, you know, with our longevity, because um, it's helped get funding, you know, along the way. And, you know, we now have a pretty substantial body of evidence, six published studies, including the real world one that we just published reporting on 1500 patients. We've treated a total of over 5,000, you know, which is, it's a, it's a good number of patients to have, to have helped with the, these conditions. Absolutely. Um, so yeah, Free Spear is one of those companies that publishes freely, which I, I have always uh, appreciated as another uh, another person in this space that likes to publish. It kind of seems like um, coming from some of these more commercial um, business backgrounds, people go, no, that's a secret. Like we can't tell people about that. I'm like, no, clinical evidence is not a secret. <laughs> you tell everybody. <laughs> All right, one last comment. Right, if you're designing a study, you got to put it on clinicaltrial.gov. Gov, so it's then public anyway. What you were the basic design, and what you're what you're going after, and clearly you should be publishing it at the end anyway. You don't have to disclose all of your secret source, but you certainly need to report on what you did and what the results were. No, that's right. And you, I remember in the early days, um, our uh, competitive intelligence folks trying to figure out what other companies were doing, and they would post things on clinicaltrials.gov, but like not put the company name, or there were all these people kind of like trying to do tricks to hide what they're doing. And at some level, there are things that you just don't hide, right? Um, so I think there's been an interesting culture shock there as companies in DTX realize like, you're entering a scientifically based field and in science, we declare what we're doing in advance. <laughs> well, right, that's the way science works. You, 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 you look for other people to come behind you and replicate your results. Eventually. You'd think that's obvious, but <laughs> here we are. Um, so in your mind, uh, DTX equals what? What's kind of the most defining issue in DTX today from where you're um, standing? Well, I think after a huge burst of enthusiasm in the pandemic for all things digital as solutions to you know, all cha many challenges in healthcare, I think DTX is now wrestling with a fundamental question about whether patients and the marketplace are really ready to embrace digital therapeutics, which I'll define this way. So it's an app, you download it from one of the stores, Google or, or Apple, and you get uh, basically prescribed and issued a code that makes it work. Right? It's to bring your own device, apart from a hardware perspective and the apps downloaded from the, uh, from the store. And I think we're wrestling with the reality that the marketplace and patients are not necessarily quite where the industry thinks they should be. Where the industry thinks they should be really isn't relevant. It isn't relevant, but that's kind of the, the current the current reality. Now, in that context, I think recent advocacy work by DTA, the P Prescription Digital Therapeutics Bill, 
in getting the new code issued by CMS are huge effort, are huge, and will go, go a long way ultimately to mainstream the DTX treatments. And they're also making a very clear distinction between true therapeutics, as we've talked about before, you know, with, ev with evidence and the, and the rest, and the myriad of um, you know, other apps and things which address general health and, the, and wellness. So in my opinion, I think the, the defining issue for DTX today is really the industry is maturing. It's now kind of into the adolescent phase and it's beginning to figure out what it's going to be when it grows up. And to my mind, it's looking more and more like a traditional med device model with evidence and quality products and structured product development that you, that you do in medtech all the time, rather than whatever it thought it was going to be back a few years. It's interesting too, because uh, you know, I at least had the, the career experience of starting off as a digital wellness product and then following the journey into digital therapeutics. And at that time, I kind of thought, oh, well, once people discover that you can actually make treatment claims about what you're doing with the digital product, that the wellness part's going to melt away. And there aren't going to be all of these companies that um, are kind of saying they're treating, but like they're not, and they're out there on the market too. You know, I thought that was like a, a thing that would naturally dissipate and it really hasn't, right? There, there's still a very mm -hmm. robust wellness market of digital products and uh, not necessarily clear ways for, you know, employers and health plans to tell the difference. Um, so it's, it's a really interesting right. thought is that, you know, we're doing it like a medical device, but there are still, there's still a very vibrant market everywhere across that spectrum and especially enforcement discretion where you have this legitimacy of being a medical yeah. device, but like not. Right. I mean, I think, I think that's great. I mean, there's I've got no, nothing against the health and wellness products. I think they serve a really useful purpose. The one thing that has been challenging for providers and health systems is there's just so many of them and many and they're so similar that how do you cut through the cut through the noise and clearly with you know DTA's offering suggestions and payers and systems are coming up with their own criteria for figuring out okay what's kind of real and what should, should we be offering to our, our members I mean the other challenge is um, utilization right because just the number of downloads doesn't really tell you very much key is how much are they being used and what benefits are the patients seeing and are the patients continuing to use the, to use them and I'm not I haven't seen a huge amount of data sort of looking at looking at that or trying to quantify it in objective meaning that's an, that's an interesting uh, problem right because free Spira's core product has objective data that you used it mm -hmm. right you can you can it phones home and says ah this person was using this for this amount of time and here's what their graph looks like but many digital products do right. not have that right they a cbt right. in a box type program for example it's like i don't know did you go do this uh, activity or not right so um there's a there's a very real problem and it's less obvious how to solve it i think you know not to say you have it easy in any way but i think at least with your product is built by design to um really clearly say when people have done things and that's harder to do with some therapeutic mod modalities than others that, that is true i mean we're, we're we have you know objective physiological data which at the end of each session gets uploaded to our our cloud and the coaches can see it so they can see if a patient's using the device and how they're you know how they're progressing with the treatments it, it always surprised me actually that some of the other sort of health and wellness apps didn't at least collect utilization data and didn't build kind of surveys in to have the patient tell how they're doing after a number of a number of sessions 
What do you think the role is? I know that the coach has a very specific role in your product, but if we could talk just a little more broadly about, you know, digital products in which you have a human who's seeing the data, um, you know, what's the relative role of automated technology versus having that human element in terms of achieving the best clinical outcomes? Right. So, I mean, we, we by design early on, we implemented a coach heavy model, believing that patients will respond better to you know, live people that they're engaging with, that they can make, make connections with, and that they'll uh, you know, then to some extent follow directions, do the sessions, and then see the results like we've seen in the published clinical studies where there was a clinician directly involved. Um, that said, now we've got you know, thousands of patients and we know what the coaching experience is like. We're beginning to see ways of automating some of the feedback that the coaches provide. So that's a, an obvious opportunity for automation and uh, enhancement as time goes by. So, you know, looking at uh, automatic analysis of the coach interactions, potentially analyzing that, and then building out various um, AI-enabled feedback mechanisms so that the, uh, the, the patient can engage with their, with their with, engage with Freespira or the, the other treatment pretty much whenever they want to do because, you know, our coaches are available kind of 9 a.m. to 9 p.m. in local time zones. But if you want to Talk to your coach outside those hours you basically have to leave a message and we'll get back to you but it's not it's not the optimum patient experience but it's not practical for a small company to provide 24-hour coverage no it's a good point it's not it's not practical really for for anybody um and so it's helpful to think about um i would love to press you just a little bit further for your thoughts on um you know the difference between things only a coach can do or only a human can do and the types of things you're describing which you kind of identify well we could probably automate that um you know is the goal to basically leave the coach to do the things once everything is automated that can be to do magic coach things right like special coach things or um is the idea that ultimate technology will catch up to mimicking what a coach does well, I don't think technology will will catch up to what the coach does because ultimately people make connections with pe- with people and that's what achieves success. That's why the personal trainer that's why personal trainers do a better job than just showing up at the gym. Right? So the question is how do we optimize the experience for the patient and you know, spend um, provide enough support but not not beyond what's really needed for them to be uh, for them to be successful. But I think this is a, a bit of a weakness of some of the download it yourself wellness applications that you you know you get feedback on the app, but which is great, and there's a very robust you know FAQ section with other videos and things. But at the end of the day, it's totally on you to use it or not. And you know, from experience of having some injuries and needing to go through physical therapy and the like, knowing that I'm going to show up the next week, talk to my PT. He or she's going to see how much progress I've made dealing with this shoulder injury. You know, that keeps me motivated to do the exercises at home, even when I don't really want to do it. So on that note, uh, what, and maybe it's related, maybe it's not. In your wildest dreams, what's something DTX will be able to do in the future that it can't do today? Oh, yeah, that's good. That's good. Well, one, achieve widespread adoption and utilization. You know, be as commonplace as taking uh, medications for different conditions. Treat additional conditions. I mean, there's a lot of uh, conditions, both purely behavioral and also where there's a large behavioral component, um, things like, you know, asthma, where I think there's some data suggesting that um, digital therapeutics can have benefit. Um, And then a really interesting one I think about 
is how to adapt treatments to specific patients. So this would be personalized DTX. As you know, there's been a lot of this done over on the pharmaceutical side or the, you know, the bio, biopharmaceutical side, thinking about looking at the patient's DNA and underlying physiological characteristics to tailor a treatment for them. And I think it should be possible to do a similar thing over on the digital, on the digital side. So that's, that'll be pretty exciting. Yeah, that's one that I've, you know, I think personalization is like the um, the uh, pot of gold at the end of the rainbow that uh, people have been talking about for many years. And I haven't quite seen it happen yet. Uh, and, and I can't, I don't want to say I can't figure out why, because it's obviously very challenging, but um, it's interesting to me because, and this is back to your the coach topic, right? When you're working with a human, the human talks to you. They ask a few questions and then they personalize. So it's a known mechanism that that humans do today. Um, so to mm -hmm. to it, you know, what's the gap between seeing that and and mimicking it in technology that makes it so hard? Well, there's I mean, one thing that can't be ignored is the regulatory impact of changing your protocol kind of without data. So if you're a one or if you're a therapist and you're dealing one on one with a patient, as you say, you answer some questions and then you're going to adapt what you where you where you lead them. When you've got an app, even with a coach, which is delivering basically a standardized, validated course of treatment, if you want to start personalizing it, you're going to have to demonstrate that the effectiveness of the personalized version is at least as good as the general version that's being used prior. And you have to do that with across the range of personalizations considered, right? And that's kind of a non-trivial exercise to design a study to show that, quite apart from the technology to actually do the personalization. So that's actually a really interesting point, and maybe maybe why um, the wellness market still has so much steam, because in the wellness market, um, you have a lot more space to get a million participants and randomize them to all kinds of different things and, you know, test all these different versions. Right. And there's a bit more, uh, you know, latitude to play with those kinds of permutations than when you're trying to do something and explain to FDA exactly, I have 14 different versions and here's the data that says that they're all good. Um, there's a higher, there's a higher standard that you have to meet there, right. um, and less of a sandbox to play in. Right. Yeah. I mean, the regulations are clear. You can't just change your code and push it out. That would be a uh, misbranded product. Yeah, absolutely. Well, that's interesting, right? So that's back to the, we're, we're doing it like a medical device over here, um, in, in DTX land for the most part. And, uh, then there's kind of this wild west of digital products still, um, that, that are able to maybe innovate a bit more, but ultimately it's the clinical populations that need the innovation the most. Mm -hmm. So I don't know how to bridge that gap, but that seems like a, a really important one. Yeah. Well, as we've talked about at DT on DTA meetings, you know, there's, you know, slow movement by the regulatory bodies to allow a bit more flexibility in the development of low, relatively low risk, you know, DTX type devices. That's one advantage the industry has for us. You know, we're, we're inherently low, low risk to the patient. Oh, that's true. There, and FDA wants to innovate, right? Mm -hmm. You know, it's just uh, it, to, to innovate in a regulatory body um, takes a lot of time and collaboration. Indeed. So we're, we're moving in that direction. Yep. Well, um, we're out of time. So uh, thank you so much for joining me. This has been Simon Thomas and DTX Equals. Thank you, Akash.